So today we are on with the full cast founders. We have Amy Cook and Ryan Westwood. This is their second rodeo together. Um, they are in the RevOps space. They recently just closed a $34 million round. And the two of them together and their prior team also sold to Infosys for $250 million. So I personally am super excited. This is represents one of Peter's portfolio companies. I think both are, right? Both Simplest was a university growth fund portfolio com company. And um, Fullcast is now again, is that public or it is now? Yeah, yeah. No, we're very excited to be uh, supporters and partners with Ryan and Amy again. I'm so. super excited. I, I met Sweet. Amy through uh, a local user group, AWS Utah, and instantly we fell in love with her and we've done stuff ever since. So like when you look at like founders, they're just rock stars, both Amy and Ryan are just phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. No. Well, we are big fans of you guys, and we really appreciate your support. And also, John, first moment I met you, I'd heard all about you, and they were like, "You got it." You got, and then I'd seen you on LinkedIn. Like you have this insane LinkedIn following. And so when I met you in person, I thought that was just, it was, it was just super awesome. So I was very glad to, very glad to be in your. Orbit. I'm I'm grateful to be around your aura, and hopefully some of your karma rubs off. <laughs> You're nice. A lot of good karma on the, on the full cast team. So I thought maybe it would be helpful for our listeners to kind of set the stage um, and talk a little bit about uh, Simplest and Ryan's background, because I think it informs a lot of, of your thinking, right, Ryan, in terms of how you're thinking about Fullcast and, and where you take this company. Ryan and I had the pleasure of meeting when we were both on the board of an Entrepreneur Venture Capital Association in Utah. And had a lot of fun putting on different events and activities to support founders and in, in our local ecosystem. And I heard that he was raising for his new startup, Simplest, and begged him to let me write a check and get in on the deal. And he was gracious enough to let us do that. But Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about like Simplest and and what that story was like? Yeah, Simplus was an incredible journey. I think that um, there are a few pivotal moments that stick out to me and things that made a big difference. I had an opportunity to write for Forbes for four years. And during that time, I interviewed 50 or so CEOs. And I was paying such close attention to every word. I mean, everything they said. And so I, I learned a lot through those interviews. I did a ton of listening. And then we applied it at Simplus. Everything that I'd learned in my career, everything I'd learned through those interviews, we applied it all at Simplus. And it was like everything in my life since I was an eight-year-old boy and, and wrote a report about being an entrepreneur. Um, and ironically, I think most eight-year-olds probably have a hard time spelling it, but I was writing, I wrote a seven-page report I still have. And... So everything from that point to Simplest, uh, everything I'd learned, we applied. And it was like this huge culmination of all this effort and energy in my life was focused on Simplest. And it became this incredibly exciting company. And we grew from zero to 600 employees in six years. And I had these incredible people like Amy running all of the go-to-market marketing and making it just hum. So uh, it was an incredible opportunity to grow a business. We were highly differentiated. One thing that was really unique about Simplest is a lot of people felt like we were too much of a niche and too differentiated. We took one small niche and hyper-focused. And for years, Amy and I took constant pressure from our sales team and from employees and from everyone else to broaden our scope. And we were relentless in our focus at being the best in the world at one thing. And it ended up that when I knew we were on the right track is we signed a $13 million deal at Google and we beat out Deloitte. And I was like, oh my gosh, I remember in the executive meeting, I was like, you know, Deloitte was founded in 1898 and like there's this tax company and this historic company and we're like this little startup and we just, we just beat them. And it was because we stayed focused and we've been beating the drum and doing one thing really, really well. 
And that was when I was like, okay, we, we've got something pretty special here. And uh, then Infosys came and made an offer we couldn't refuse. So we took the offer and sold the business. 250 million bucks. And you did yeah. it right at the top of the pretty, market pretty when great. the market crashed. We did. That was also, I still remember being with Clint Betts at a jazz game and being like, oh my gosh, three days till it funds. And it was the day it actually funded is when Donald Trump said, we have a national pandemic. This is serious. And I was wow. like, just kept refreshing the bank account. Like, oh, okay, it's done. It happened. It's over. Because <laughs> I was getting calls from other friendly, like competitor CEOs that were in the same process and the, the buyers bell. And they were only wow. three weeks. They were three weeks behind us. And wow. they walked away. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this, this needs to happen. We need to close. So it's one of those things where you're calm in front of the team, but re in reality, I was just all nerves because mm -hmm. I knew everything going on in the world. And so I felt very fortunate. We have, you know, I think of what's the movie, um, it came out, it was Vin Diesel when I was in high school and the, the car movie, uh, Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious? You know, yeah. you, know how he, you know how he says that, you know, he, he, he you can win by an inch or a mile, but a win's a win. I feel yeah. like my career has been all winning by inches. I like the whole way. I, I It's just just trying a little bit harder and not being relentless and not being willing to give up and we win every time and people see the track record but peter i think it's mostly by inches yeah i think that's the way it, it is for most people right it's you know you move the mountain one shovel full at a time you eat the elephant one bite at a time um one of the things that i've always really respected about you ryan is your ability to build amazing cultures and one of the things you talked about you kind of hinted at with this google deal was you had built this really interesting ethos within the company of always being like the underdog. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and where that came from and, and how that you had to pivot that over time as a company went from being like the little underdog to winning the big contracts like Google? It's interesting because if you think about core values of a company, I think sometimes founders, they put values up that they think that people would like or that they saw from another entrepreneur. And I really think that at the heart of the founders, it has to be something you really, really believe in. And as part of like, even if you weren't a part of the startup, this would be core to you as a leader. And I think Amy and I at many times in our lives and our careers have felt like underdogs. And so it was very easy to have underdog spirit be one of our core values because it was so authentic to who we are. Mm -hmm. But the first time I really felt like an underdog was, and I've, I've told this story before, but I was in Philadelphia. I was um, this kid from Utah. My teacher was one year from retirement. She was racist. And she also really didn't like members of the Church of Jesus Christ. She said to me, Hey, you're the Mormon kid. You guys are, you guys are black. You sit at the back of the table. Here's some glue sticks. If you raise your hand, I will not respond. Don't ask me any questions. Figure it out this year. Wow. And I spent a year in the back of the classroom being completely ignored and feeling what it was like to have no privilege. And I had to catch up in school the next three years. And I got this chip on my shoulder. Like I'm, I, I got this. I'm smart. I'm going to get to the, I'm going to get to where everybody else is and get ahead. And in the fourth grade, I want a spelling bee against the sixth graders. And I was like, yes, I did it. And it was the first time that like it drove deep into my heart an underdog spirit and like a chip. So that's where it started. And I think Peter, every time you read a biography or you learn about somebody who's successful, there's always this tie to their childhood. There's always yeah. these defining moments. I mean, Amy, I'd love to hear just like 
from you, when in your childhood, in your life, when did that underdog spirit come about? I've just been thinking about that because I think you're absolutely right. Like everyone that I know who has like grit that won't stop has had a really like pivotal life-defining moment where they had to just pull themselves up and keep going. For me, it was when I was newly married. I had been divorced. I had two little kids. I got remarried and I thought everything was going great. My husband got a job one month um, before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt with Lehman Brothers. So then he was, you know, he was like unemployed. We had tiny little kids. Um, I couldn't move because of a custody arrangement. He couldn't find a job in the area. He had just had back surgery. Like it was like kind of dire straits for us and we weren't paying the bills. And so then I'm like, you know what? It's go time. Like what, what am I going to do? Because these kids need to eat, you know? And so it, Jeff uh, came to me, my husband's Jeff, and he's, he gave me this uh, he was like, hey, Amy, I've got this $10,000 tax return. Let's split it in half and each take $5,000 and see who can make the most money. And so I thought it was awesome. And I really appreciated it because it kind of got me out of my like, oh, everything's so hard to, yes, yeah, let's do this. And he made it fun. And so um, you can ask me who won. Don't <laughs> me. Yeah, man. I, won. <laughs> I won. I won. I won the competition. But he says that because he invested his in real estate. So he goes, well, if we're counting how many hours spent to make <laughs> then he wins because I put a whole heck of a lot of time into it. But I used that $5,000 to start a business and I started a writing business. And one of my clients was Brian Westwood helping him write his Forbes columns. And so he talks about Forbes columns and learning from the greats. And for me, it was so amazing to be able to learn right along with Ryan and learn from Ryan and be able to like have that knowledge distilled as I'm writing these articles. And so like Ryan very quickly became one of the people I admire most and continue to admire most. And so then I was like, you know what, I just, when Ryan asked me to, you know, join, to leave my business and to join um, the team and be the head of marketing at Simplest, it was a no-brainer. I was like, absolutely. I have so much to learn. And, you know, it was just such an exciting time. So that was that was my story. And it was a really a wonderful, um, just a wonderful outcome. And, and I have so much appreciation for the team that we work with now, for Ryan as a leader, for the value-centric approach that we take, and for that grit mentality that just like we will not stop we absolutely will not stop it does not matter how long it like how long it takes or how many hours we have to stay up to do it you know so i think that's been a really great question. yeah you're a night owl amy i've learned this yeah. i was like she she <laughs> sleeps less than i do well you know when you're just so excited about it what, what can you do like i'll stay up researching competitors and you know it's pretty exciting awesome. well tell us about full cast on what is it Ryan, you want to take it? Yeah, sure. So um, during our time off, we were thinking, okay, if we if we get back involved in building a business again, what does that all look like? And one thing that we came away with is we were like, we don't want to start at zero again. That's really, really hard. It, it You can burn up a lot of cycles trying to get to product market fit. How do we find a business that we're super excited about that already exists? So that was criteria number one was an existing business. We're not going to start from scratch. Number two is, can the business look like the profile of a public company? Can we buy a business that we can really build over the long term with high gross margins? Is it scalable? Is it recurring revenue? Is it that kind of model that we can build a much bigger company with? The other thing is, is, is it highly differentiated? We found and have learned highly differentiated businesses uh, can go much, much further. Uh, then the last thing is, is we wanted a really technical team. We felt like a technical team that had built the product, but needed just an accelerant and a go-to-market team would be a great marriage for what we do in our team. So we found all that in full cast. 
And when I started interviewing customers and customers were really, really happy, I, that's when I was like, okay, this is it. This is the one. And then when all the founders agreed so quickly, I was like, okay, we're definitely on the right track. And, and I would say that I'm even more excited now than when we were in due diligence. Who are all the founders of Whole Foods? So what is... Yeah, so the founders are Amy, Lance, Isaac, and myself. So Isaac Westwood's our COO, Lance is our chief commercial officer, Amy's our CMO, and then myself. It's a cool team. Yeah, we've all been doing it for a long time. Lance was ahead of our partnerships and alliances at Simplis. And um, he, it's been seven plus years I've worked with him. So interesting thing about the team is we have opted to work together multiple times. And uh, we've been through a lot of hard times and good times and ups and downs. And we still like to work together. And I think a really rare thing about our team is that we ought to keep working together independent of the wealth we've created for each other, independent of new opportunities. Even when we've been presented lots of other options, we've all opted to work together. That's fun. Can you talk a little bit about what Fullcast does? Yeah. So if you think of, if, if you think about um, right now, 40, depending on the studies you see, 40 to 50% of reps are not hitting quotas. And our belief is that one of the major reasons they're not hitting quotas is they're not being set up to succeed. So their territories, their, the way the leads are managed and tracked, the geographies, the products they're told to sell, the sell, the industries that they're in, these things, sometimes uh, sales reps are are let down by their own companies and organizations. And we believe they're not being set up properly to win and succeed. And with full cast, those teams have a higher likelihood of hitting their quotas and achieving them. And our customers report far greater confidence by the sales teams that quotas and territories are right and accurate. And, and if you've got a sales team that's excited and believes they have the right territory and the right quota makes a magnificent difference in the growth of a company. So my belief is, is that without full cast, your, your reps aren't achieving what they could be. Yep. Yep. Just to follow on to that, like we've all been in sales positions before and we know what it's like to not be supported. And we know what it's like to feel like, you know, you're just being used and abused by the company and you're not being set up for success. There's a really interesting statistic that I'll have to get the uh, source for you later saying that when when reps hit only 95% of quota instead of 100, they are like 300 times, uh, not times, 300% more likely to attrit. And then you have the cost of all of that trying to find someone new um, when really, if you could just help them get to that 5%, you save so much in employee satisfaction, you save so much in, um, you know, in, in your revenue and not having to ramp someone else up. And so it, and you have such a better culture. So there is the, the culture piece, the revenue piece, all of those things to really help the salespeople succeed. And so you're starting off with sales territory management, but the talk to us about the bigger vision. Cause I think the bigger vision is that there really isn't a dominant player in RevOps. And RevOps is like this nebulous term that means something slightly different to everybody. Um, can you talk about like how you think about RevOps and how it relates to full cast going forward? Amy, you talk about RevOps. I'll cover, I'll cover the strategy for the bigger picture. Go ahead. Okay, perfect. All right. So RevOps is so interesting because it was... Form, the term was coined by the CEO of Lean Data in 2016. Like this has not been a term that has been used a lot. But everyone sees how that connective tissue between sales and marketing and customer success is missing, right? You've got Salesforce that tried to automate and remove revenue pain from sales. You've got HubSpot that retried to remove revenue pain from marketing, but they're not talking to each other. That connective tissue is gone. And what we hope to do with Fullcast is to have that connective tissue there to really streamline those systems and make sure 
that um, everyone is just set up to succeed and all of that conflict between sales and marketing, et cetera, is gone. Yeah. So just to, just to further what Amy's saying, I mean, we really see an opportunity where you have all these point solutions in RevOps. There's tons of point yeah. solutions to combine those point solutions to create one flow or go to market platform. And that's what we're focused on doing. Uh, my belief is there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there building products or companies that would like to join a team of experienced entrepreneurs that have a track record of success that can help them be successful and will look to be uh, aggressive uh, about opportunities to acquire. Any other radar that you guys can talk about? Probably not, but I mean, you've already, you, you and Amy became uh, co-founded, you acquired that company. Yeah, what I will tell you is that uh, I'm reviewing an LOI right now, so there is one on the docket. So that was a big part about what made you successful at Simplus was the the acquisition roll-up strategy. Yeah, we did seven in three years. Okay. Uh, we were pretty pretty focused on that process. We love uh, M and A. It takes a lot of execution. It's tedious. You have to be maniacal about details. Most teams aren't set up for M&A. Most fell, and I don't think most teams um, really understand or appreciate the nuances of it. I give an example. You, you buy a company, somebody has one benefit, one small benefit that is slightly better than yours, and you don't notice it, and you bring them into your company, you will demoralize that person. And so if yeah. your team is not aware of those finite details and willing to manage them and understand them, it backfires. And I think most M&A transactions fail because of lack of execution and paying attention to detail. And that's where Isaac Westwood comes into place, our COO, where you know I can bring these deals in, but he is going to make sure every tedious little thing gets managed and taken care of. And that's where we make, we, we really complement each other so well as co-founders because my my weaknesses are their strengths and vice versa. And we're all really aware of each other's weaknesses and strengths. And we're really open with each other about those weaknesses and strengths. We absolutely and, are. It's, yeah. it's a culture that I had to get used to because I came from an entertainment family where everything was gold and gilded and the show must go on and you must not show any cracks in the exterior. And so then to start working with Ryan and Isaac and and uh, and Lance and have them say to me, what are you actually thinking? Like, you're saying this, but what do you actually think? And I, I, it's so gratifying to be able to, to talk with somebody and have that level of trust where you can actually say what you think. And you can say something like, you know, I think that that sales number is bullcrap because I think you're sandbagging your number and have them be like, am I sandbagging my number? Okay, let's review it and and have that not blow back on you and have that not there. There are nothing but good things that have come from being transparent. And that is such an unusual um, thing to do in an organization. But it's something that I have come to really respect and admire about the team. And it's my weakness yeah, and I'm that. trying to let get better at that. Yeah, having a culture where you can be honest and authentic is so valuable, right? You're able to see around corners that other people can't because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ryan has a really good um, model that we use that's uh, Lencioni's model of organizational health. Uh, we use that as kind of a, an underpinning of how we want to run an organization and how we want to get rid of any of the... Have you heard of the five dysfunctions of the team? I'm sure you have. But we use that. Yeah, but do you want to do all of our, our listeners real quick? Um, well, sure. Yeah. So like the five dysfunctions of a team is based on uh, Lencioni. And let me look it up so I don't get it wrong. Um, but they, it's based on a little a pyramid that you can look at. And he talks through the organizational health of a company. And it's about you've got to have number one, you've got to have the trust. Mm -hmm. um, number one, you got to have number two. You got to have unity. Number three, you got to have healthy disagreement, which is what I was just talking about, because I just, you know, that's my weakness, right? Number four, you got to have accountability, and number five, you've got to have some self-interest. 
So you've got to, and Brian, do you want to expound on that? Because I think yeah, you've sure. extended beyond lens. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm geeky enough and love this stuff enough that I wrote a 20 page document on this operating model, um, that we now use to run the company because I, I, I just genuinely, whether I'm running a company or not, the process and the details of how you do it is just a life obsession of mine. And so, um, I even love helping other entrepreneurs or CEOs and watching their growth rates double and triple by just making small changes. It's, it, it, it's really not major changes that are the difference makers between fast growing companies and those that aren't. But when you, when you hit on those five points, one of them that she was talking about, I'll just hit on is commitment, right? And when you're, when you're really committed team and you're and you have, if you have anybody on your team, that's not fully committed and they, they weaken the entire team. If you've ever joined to, to go work for a nonprofit or, or you go do anything and you show up and people are half-hearted, it's demoralizing. And so yeah. you've got to be fully committed. So one of the things we do is we put our hands in at the end of meetings, you know, and like at the end of a budget meeting, it's a boring meeting. We put our hands in and say, are you committed? Uh, we also have where every single uh, executive is an investor. You don't join our executive teams unless you cut checks. So yep. unless it hurts really, really bad when you don't succeed, you don't join our executive teams. So, and I, and I used to think that wasn't that big of a deal, but the more I find, the more I see that so many startups are freely giving out stock. They're so excited about gathering or, or gathering this leadership team together and they forget that it's a two-way street yes you will give them stock but they also you need their heart and commitment to build and if they're yeah. not willing to do that then they don't have a place on our leadership teams and the, and the way we work so we have passed on talented people who at the end of the day weren't able to cut a check into the company um, and we've had people, um, empty their, uh, without telling us until later, empty retirement accounts. Um, and we've made the them a lot of money. That, yeah. That puts the pressure yeah. on, you know, um, one other thing, if I'm, if I could just kind of expound on some of the, the principles that Ryan's used that I think are so, um, so interesting, different and important. And one of the reasons that he is successful time and time again is because, um, I've, when I was uh, running an agency, I ran it for 15 years before Fullcast and before I was working with Ryan. Um, I had a chance to work with literally hundreds of CEOs because I was doing their brand. I was helping them with their marketing. And so in my opinion, I have a really, really good bird's eye view of what makes a good CEO because I've been working with so many of them for so long. And uh, there are a couple of things that I think are really excellent about the way that Ryan operates and other successful CEOs operate that are super important and they are actually truly life-changing to a business. The first one is that this is like you have to have direct and decisive leadership. There has to be somewhere where the buck is going to stop and someone's taking responsibility with it for it. And the CEO needs to make sure that each executive is is taking full responsibility for that. And then when there's disagreement, then the CEO says, okay, this is the answer. This is the answer. This is where we're moving and we disagree and commit. That to me, I have seen I have seen multiple businesses fail because of that. The second thing that I think that Ryan does really well is um, I think that it is uh, really, really important to have that small differentiated, um, like that small segment of like where you strike uh, and, then, and then expand, that differentiation um, and it's really hard to have that discipline to say, we are going in here and we are going to get all of the TAM here and then we're going to expand. And that what Ryan mentioned before was like, it was really hard for the sales team, the simplest to understand that because they're like, I've got it. I've got an amazing like sales cloud deal right here. And why do you like, why do you only want CPQ or whatever, you know? And so we need to put it on our website and yada, yada. And so I think having that discipline is really important. So anything else, Ryan, you would say? I would just say that the only reason that I'm able to be a capable CEO 
is because I have a way better team and a bunch of people that are better at all their departments than I am. So Amy is way better at running marketing than I would ever be. She knows it better. She's passionate about it. She has done every role in the marketing department. She can go deep in any area of marketing. She's put in the time and effort. She's got mentors. She's learned. And now she's a mentor to many, many, many marketing leaders. So I couldn't do my job well if I didn't have it distributed. One thing I see with a lot of startup founders is, you know, they really feel like they're the big hero, right? And at the end of the day, it's a big time backfire and a miss. Uh, it is such a, a miss in judgment. You do not want to be that person. You will burn out. You will not make it. You want to have the best team you can possibly have. And you want to distribute out the uh, energy, the effort, the burden, the stress across all of you. And that's why you have co-founders. That's why you're not a solo founder. So I like to distribute the wealth. I, I'm happy to share equity. I'm happy to share all the opportunity with really smart people, especially if you've worked for people for a long period of time. I always tell entrepreneurs, you should have a list if you're an entrepreneur with everyone you've met throughout your life that's impressed you. You should have that and you should be ready at all times with that list. You know what I, what I love about that too? And, and one of the things that has really struck out to me working together uh, with you as an, on the investor side is that you don't settle. And, and I think Amy is a great example of that in that I think a lot of entrepreneurs and maybe maybe it's, you know, the Peter principle, as they call it, where like they think they're the hero and they 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 feel threatened by people that are better than them at certain things. But like I remember having conversations with you at Simplest where you're like, I want like the best CFO. I want the best marketing person. I don't want like somebody who's good. I want somebody who's done it and can do it again and is really good, and I'm gonna set my sights real high, and I'm just gonna go after them until I get them. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, like, either maybe they're insecure, maybe they're, you know, afraid of somebody outshining them. I don't I don't know what it is, but, but sometimes they settle. And I think the fact that you don't settle allows you to build this incredible team around you. Um, so anyways, well, just I, that's just one of the things I, that I- right. Yeah, thanks, Peter. I think Brian's being too kind and generous on this call. Actually, I have so much to learn, but I will say that having like hiring hiring a team with you it, that is that you think is phenomenal is so important. Not just because it, it creates good feelings, but also there has to be that trust trust there, right? You have yep. to be able to just take to to know like, okay, I don't have to worry about this department. They've got it. I can sleep at yep. night. You know what I mean? And so like, I really do think that having, you know, being able to have that level of trust. And for me, knowing someone is, um, has got my back and is going to help me when in, in areas that I'm weak in is really important. For example, um, we're like, uh, looking at utilization numbers for a full cast this week, right? Tim Huss, the CFO comes to me and he's like, how are you calculating this? And like, da, da 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 I could have totally taken offense to that and be like, I totally know what I'm talking about in the utilization, but I trust him. And I trust that he's not going, he's not doing anything to try to make me look bad. He's trying to help me out. Right. And so we had this meeting two days ago and, and they found a place where we were using internal hours for something and forgetting to allocate it. And it changed the utilization number and it made every, like we figured it out. I would have never been able to do that if I had been siloed and and been like, I got this, I got this, you know, I'll tell you what my number is. And so having that level of trust is a really important um, way to run the business, in my opinion. My advice to founders on this issue is if you want to sleep at night and you want to succeed, get over your ego and hire the people you need. Yep. That's a, that just boils Speaking, down. Speaking like of it. like... <laughs> <laughs> so talking a little bit about some of the um, the things you learned 
uh, as you're as you're moving forward with with uh, Fullcast, I'm curious, like, what are maybe some mistakes you made in the past at Simplest and maybe other companies that you you learned from and you're bringing to the table that you're super excited about implementing at Fullcast? Can I yeah. say I've done everything yeah. wrong once? I've done everything wrong once, yeah. so then I can do it right the second time. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so true. Um, there's a long list of things that we didn't do right. Um, and like you said, Amy, I feel like we just went really hard and fast and we just tried a lot of things and we failed a lot at everything. And once you get it out of the way, you can be successful. And I feel that way about every area of business for me in tech or out. I have failed in I've failed in being an investor. I've failed in real estate. I've failed as an entrepreneur and I got it out of the way. I took my lickings and then was like, here's act number two. And every time uh, we've been very successful since on all of those things, but we embrace those failures and we learn from them. We made changes. I'm a different investor. I'm a different CEO. All those things evolve because of those failures, but it's simplest. And before, one of those lessons was, I always thought we just need sales. And it, and, and whatever it is, let's just sell. And it was such a, that was one lesson I learned, Peter, which is you don't build a brand just selling everything. You don't differentiate. You don't win long-term. You don't build a big company selling everything. Another one I learned is just grow fast, 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 fast. It'll be okay. And that's what I thought early on. And I learned that there's a serious issue around cash flow with that mentality. You can go out of business and make mistakes. You have to understand the difference between profitability and growth. And you have to understand the correlation and the balance. Being a great operator is understanding your levers, both margin and revenue. And your number one job as a CEO is making sure the cash is there so everyone else can do their job. If you build out that great team, you then have the luxury of making sure you have a balance sheet for them to do their jobs. And then they love working for you because you set a vision, you get out of their way, and you make sure they have the money they need to succeed. And that's what great operator CEOs do. But those two things early on that I missed totally, the differentiation, and the cash flow management, those are things I failed at and they hurt so bad that I learned how to manage them better. Mm -hmm. Yep, I love that. I, lo I love how succinct it is too, because this is something that a friend of mine asked me the other day, is like, what, what makes for a great founder that's worth backing uh, as a venture investor? And we talked through a lot of different things, but ultimately it all boils down to what you talked about. It's, it's hiring, the ability to hire an amazing team the ability to fundraise and give them the cash they need to do their job and to hold the torch of the vision, right? That, so that there's good alignment with everybody. And uh, and I feel like if everybody can approach those in different ways, but if you can't check all three of those boxes, it's going to be a real slog as a venture-backed CEO. Uh, and maybe you can be successful in other areas, but I, but I feel like, if, especially if you want to be venture-backed, you really need uh, those three things. Peter, I love totally how succinct find that that's so foundational to the success of the business i really love that can we, can we talk about the deal now like what did it look like why did you invest peter <laughs> yeah let's hear from peter so <clears throat> so we were just really excited honestly to back ryan and amy and lance and the rest of the team i think there is a certain level of magic that happens when a team has worked together through ups and downs and produced success consistently over time. That um, has such a huge de-risking factor to an investment. Um, and I also loved, like, as great as Simplest was and as great of an outcome selling to Infosys as it was, uh, and maybe you disagree, Ryan, but I feel like that this team, like, has infinitely more potential and so I was excited to be able to be backing a team in a new platform where they could just really run at it and, and push it to the limit. Um, so that was another reason. 
We've also like just talking a little more strategically, we've looked and invested in a number of the RevOps point solutions that are out there. And so this story and vision of kind of creating a more unified approach to RevOps, which is a, a massive sector, uh, really appealed to us and our team. Uh, and so, you know, there was a clear vision. It also played really well to, I think, a lot of Ryan and Amy and the rest of the team's strengths around we are sitting in this unique period of time where there have been a number of companies that raised a lot of money, very high valuations, not going to survive. And so those with cash will be in a very strong, dominant position to be able to take advantage either through acquisition or acquiring market share during this time period. And so that just seemed to really play towards uh, the team's strengths, given what they did at Simplis. And so there were just a lot of these like pieces that kind of lined up from a team composition, from an industry composition, and, and, and from like a timing uh, position uh, that got us really excited about, about backing, backing yeah. Ryan and well, Peter, thank you for saying that. And thank you for backing us again. And, and once again, we will, we will have a great outcome for all of us. Uh, let me, let me just say this. Uh, I love what you said about just the platform and us being able to being capable of more. I felt like when we were a part of Infosys and I was looking around at the global practice and it was north of 600 million. And I realized how big the opportunity was. And I realized how talented my team is and what they're capable of. I knew deep down in my heart that we were capable of building a much, much bigger company. And I think that's what made it so that I just couldn't, I, I'm, I'm one, I'm an awful golfer and I couldn't stay on. I'm also not the kind of person that can sit on the couch very long. I knew that I needed to do something, but more than that, I knew in my heart that our team is capable of something much bigger. And that if we did it right, you know, we're, we're giving 1% to a foundation. We're going to be, you know, have a philanthropic element to what we're doing. Um, I knew that if we did it right with the right team, we could have a really big impact on our industry, on Utah, and on tech. I love that. Does that make you a B Corp? Can you then? talk, Ryan, a little bit? About what was... Would that make you a B Corp then? Are you... We're not a B Corp, okay. but that's something we've actually discussed is uh, pursuing that. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the fundraising environment? So 2023, I feel like in some ways was kind of like this lost year because so many venture funds were like, we don't know what's happening with valuations. We don't want to take down rounds, markdowns, like all kinds of stuff. And so there's like this big pullback, especially if you were anything that wasn't AI, right? <laughs> AI, like it was like a whole other thing. But if you were an AI as like a core AI business, it, it was kind of a challenging fundraising environment, right? And do you want to talk a little bit about what that what that process was like and, and things that you found uh, that helped you be successful through that process that might be relevant to uh, other founders? I think right now, particularly in this environment, being a repeat founder um, is significant. I think it makes a yeah. really big difference. So first thing I want to say is if somebody looked at the round, and saw the seed round and said, man, it's really hard out there. I'm struggling. First thing I want to say to you is that just understand the circumstances are different. We're a little later in our entrepreneurial careers and not played a big part in it. So don't beat yourself up. The, the, the second thing that I would say is, is we also wrote big checks ourselves. So mm -hmm. it, when you think about the round one, understand this is a third or fourth company for many of us. We've been returning money to investors since the beginning of our careers. Two, we wrote, you know, as a founding team, $9 million in capital. Yeah. We put a lot of money into the business. So if you're also thinking, wow, this is really hard fundraising environment, realize that we wrote big checks ourselves. So I just wanted other entrepreneurs that are looking at the experience 
One thing I don't want them to do is compare themselves and not have the facts. I want them to understand all the modalities to this. We did, you may not be able to cut $9 million check and you may not have had three or four other ventures, right? Those things played majorly in our favor. Then we had a list of investors that have had great outcomes with us and we almost exclusively raised from them. So the other thing to keep in mind is if you haven't already returned money to your investors and they've had a great return, then it might be a lot harder to raise money right now. So that's the other thing is we, we did and many of our investors, you know, if you go down the list, Todd Peterson was in simplest and Todd Peterson was a quick meeting and a million dollar check. Uh, Jeremy Andrus, Josh James, uh, these great people who have been uh, supportive of our ventures in the past. Um, my earliest seed investor, very first one who did a 20K check in PCS before Simplest, mm -hmm. he got a great yep. outcome in that business and a great return. He was a half hour call and a half a million dollar check yep. uh, because he, he had a huge return in two companies with us. So, and with him, he seeded both. So when I say huge, it's because it really was like seed, seed. So, so he was a half a million and his partner was a half a million. So a million bucks came in, in two half hour calls because we'd returned money twice before. And, and for entrepreneurs, I want you to hear this. If you return money to someone twice in short span, and got them a great return. When you call them, they're likely to be a lot more excited about your phone call to raise money. So the moral of the story is, is deliver for people. Don't give up on what you're doing. At Simplest, we were, you know, we were uh, an integration platform and then we were a services business. I can't tell you how many people told me that wasn't the kind of business to raise venture capital for and you won't make it. I want to express my most sincere gratitude to all of those people because they gave me unbelievable fuel. But the, 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 at the end of the day, all of these things happened because we just, like I said, we won by inches and we don't ever give up. So our fundraise went the way it did because of a lot of variables that happened years ago that gave us this opportunity now. So Having said all that, it was still hard. We still had to make more calls than we thought. And we collected a lot smaller checks than we expected from people. And so that was a difficult part of this. Amy raised millions herself independent of me. And that's what I mean by being a founder that distributes it out. You got to have powerhouses. You got you to gotta realize like Amy on her own would do great at what I do. And so having her on the team strengthens everyone. I think that, Ryan, I love what you said about, you know, putting that, putting it in, putting away for future, that in the, into the emotional bank account for, for the future and being the person that is trustworthy, that you can count on to protect your money, just like you would your own. And I think that the, the other sources besides former investors that we got money from were former clients and former employees. Like we yes. did not go outside of our own network. No. And so what was really exciting to me is I'd had all, a lot of these former CEOs that I had, I was telling you about who were like, I want to know what you're doing and wrote a check. And to me, that was very exciting to see that, you know, that, that when you never burn your bridges, when you treat people well, when you deliver on what you say you're going to deliver on, good things happen. Yeah. So what's interesting is for around this size, what makes it really, really unique is usually the majority is venture capital, right? It was actually not the majority. Like Amy said, we had dozens of employees. We had more than 10 customers invest in the round. And we had our leadership team. And then we had our, our angels, ourselves, and then our VCs. So it was very unorthodox round, but I would rather have tons of customers and employees rounding out around than another venture capital group. Yeah. 
Well, and as a VC, I would rather have that on the cap table too, right? Because uh, it brings a certain level of you know commitment across the board that I think is really interesting. The the other thing I just want to pull out from something you said that I think is maybe a valuable uh, piece of learning is your story of that that investor that backed you at PC Express and like that business was not a huge business or a massive massive you know outcome. And that's okay because it, you know, it teed up, I'm sure you learned an insane amount through that process and it teed you up for where you are today. And I think sometimes it can be easy to get sucked into this belief that like, oh, the first company I have to build has to be like Facebook, has to be huge. Um, And that's not necessarily the case, uh, right? Like it's okay to start small and start like learning and proving um, and, and, you know, you can still have a very successful career, you know, exiting, building and exiting businesses as you go. Yeah, we didn't have any venture capital. Uh, there was only two angel investors and then the existing team. We all had an outcome that was good, but it was a single, right? It was a single. It wasn't like it was crazy, but we were building a track record and we were building up to where we are today and the business models every time have improved. So everything that we've run, the business model has been better. The team has been better. We've been better capitalized. And so we really have gone from the bottom. We didn't come out with a bunch of, you know, venture capital and a big, big platform. Every time we've gotten bigger and better, but it's been gradual. And, you know, I'm 40 years old and it's been a while. It's taken time to get to this place. But you're winning by inches and those wins add up. Four miles, whatever. Yes. Great. That's right. It's been inches. No miles for me. (laughs) Well, it's good. Well, thank you guys for being on the Venture Capital Podcast. It's an amazing experience. Is there anything that our, our listeners can like help you out with? That's no. so kind. Yeah, we're so grateful to be it? on the show. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. If there is anything that we can help our listeners with, though, I would love to leave my contact information if that's possible. Um, so my, I'm a very good texter. I'll text you back. My number is 949-813-0182. And I promise to text anyone back. I probably won't call them because I never get my calls. So <laughs> if you want to text me and then I'll call you. I just won't know. So, but if there's anything that I can help any of your listeners with at all, we're always happy to offer what advice we have. And we know that we have a lot to learn as well. Well, awesome. Well, thank you guys for watching. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for for joining. And and if you guys want to learn more about Ryan and Amy, their links uh, will be in the show descriptions here on YouTube and on Apple and on Spotify. Thanks guys for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. And check out fullcast.com for your rev ops. Wait, one last question. What is the ideal cut client right now? 50 salespeople are greater. There you go. So you have 50 salespeople are greater. Go check out fullcast.com.